0: Good morning. This morning we continue in our series of studies in the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 2. You can turn there with me. In chapter 2, and in verse 1, we begin, what is the letters to the seven churches? And as we consider these letters, it's important to note that there are certain things about these letters that are true. One thing is that each of these epistles, from Jesus to the seven churches, can be examined in at least four different ways. And we're going to do that over the next seven weeks We're going to look at each of these letters from four different ways. First of all, it's a past message. It's a message that was given and received. And it was a message that was given to historical churches in around 95 AD. So we'll look at that church historically. It's also, though, a prophetic message describing each of the successive church eras from 30 AD until today. So you can look at it as the letter that was written, but you can also look at it very clearly as a, as a prophetic message to a time period within the church of Jesus Christ. A time period. That would be like, for example, the church of Ephesus. Uh, that letter to them is, is a letter to the apostolic age and the things that the very first era of church history was dealing with. We'll look at it that way this morning. Also, of course, it's a practical message to any church— in existence today, any church that's ever existed. So you can look at this letter, and you can say, well, this speaks to a church today, not just the apostolic age, not just the first century church of Ephesus, but any church that can relate to the practical message contained in this section of Scripture. Also, and finally, and this is perhaps the most important, it's a personal message. It's a personal message to each of the members of the church throughout its history, So think of it in those four ways. As we look at the scripture, you're going to be able to receive from the scripture in a way that you will understand it for yourself. Understand it for yourself. So let's open in a word of prayer and get into the study of the letters to the seven churches. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Oh Lord, it's been a busy morning. There's a lot going on here. And Lord, I myself have been running around like a lunatic for the last hour. And I can really relate to the message within this letter to the church in Ephesus. I've already received just thinking about the message. But I pray now that you would give me the ability to communicate the message that you want to communicate to us through the power of the Spirit. That you touch every heart, encourage this church and any church with the message from your Holy Spirit, and give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by reading the entire letter. To the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church... In Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have testified those who claim to be apostles. Excuse me, tested. You can see I'm getting older. Can't read with my glasses on. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We'll break that down now, but it's important to read that as an entire letter. First thing I'll point out, the obvious, to the churches. So you see the letter, while written to a church, is actually for all of the churches. And it was included here. It wasn't a separate letter. It was included that all of the churches may receive from it, and all the churches throughout the centuries, and each of us as well. As we look at this, let me give you a little bit of background, just a little bit, about the church in Ephesus and the city there. It was founded around 51 AD when Paul was returning from Greece to Syria. It's recorded in Acts chapter 18. Paul first visited this city at the close of his second missionary journey. He remained for only a short time, but he left two individuals, members of his missionary team named Aquila and Priscilla, and they planted this church. Paul did not plant this church, but Paul returned during his third missionary journey, and pastored there for about three years. They were very successful in reaching the entire province of Proconsular Asia, which is western Turkey, and it is probable that the other six churches in the book of Revelation were founded by missionaries that came from Ephesus. So this is really the hub, the work Of the Spirit began in Ephesus. Again, Paul visited there, didn't plant the church, but came back and pastored for three years. Longest pastorate Paul ever had. Spent a lot of time there. Now, later on, Paul met with the Ephesian elders in Miletus, which is about 30 miles south, on his return journey on his way to Jerusalem. That's recorded in Acts chapter 20. So all of this is in Acts chapters uh, 18 through 20. Paul wrote also, as we probably are aware of, He also wrote his epistle to the Ephesians, but that was later while he was imprisoned in Rome. And then he wrote to Timothy, his assistant in ministry, who was ministering at Ephesus near the close of Paul's life. So he wrote quite a few letters to the church there, some individual letters to Timothy, but also to the church, and communicated with them, we have the letter to the Ephesians, but this is not a letter from Paul. This is a letter from Jesus. And it's not even a letter from John. And it's interesting because tradition says that the apostle John spent many years in Ephesus where he ultimately died and was buried. So this was really the hub of the work in Greece and western Turkey. You had churches like the church in Jerusalem, which reached out to the Jews. You had a church in Antioch in Syria, which reached out to eastern Turkey and the area of Syria and the coast of what is now Lebanon. But this western hub of ministry in Ephesus was used mightily by God to reach many, many people. Now, This church's name, each of the names of these churches are interesting and important to consider. The name Ephesus in Greek means desirable, desirable. And the truth is this was a very desirable church. We look at verse 1, look how it starts. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you weren't with us last week, we saw this in vision in chapter 1. This is exactly how John saw Jesus in the vision, holding the seven stars. It's a vision. They're symbols, holding the seven stars, walking among the seven lampstands. And we learned last week in chapter 20 of the previous, uh, excuse me, in chapter uh, 1, verse 20, we, we saw that this was, in fact, a symbol that was interpreted for us. And it's always wonderful when the Bible tells us exactly what the symbol means, And if you read there in verse 20, you'll find out that the seven stars symbolize the messengers or the pastors of the seven churches who are pictured being held in Jesus's right hand, and that the lampstands are the seven churches that Jesus wants John to address. So no problem interpreting the stars and the lampstands. But as we consider this church Look at what Jesus has to say to this church in verses 2 and 3. This is a commendation. This is Jesus commending this church when he says in verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. That is a wonderful commendation, a wonderful testimony of the strength of this church and why this church could be named Ephesus or desirable. So many good things happening. First of all, verse 1, Jesus is the authority in this church. Verse 2, verses 2 and 3, what were they doing? They were faithful in their work for the Lord. And They were faithful to the truth of the gospel. They tested those that claimed to be apostles, but were not. They were false. They were were testing those with the word of God. They were faithful to the truth of the gospel. They were not going to allow any error or any type of, of, of false communication of the gospel in their church. Finally, they endured persecution, difficulty. So you could look at that and say, wow, what a church. What was this church doing? And it's always good to sort of look at this in the number of ways I mentioned in our introduction, not just my own life, but our church as a whole. When we look at the church, are we faithful in our work for the Lord? Are we faithful to the truth of the gospel? Are we sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? And finally, are we faithfully enduring persecution? I think we think in the church today that the goal is no persecution. I mean, listen, I get up in the morning whether it's a Sunday or any other day, and I don't get up and say, I really hope that I get persecuted today, really hope that someone cuts me off like they did on my way to church today, driving like 90 miles an hour in the fast lane. You know, I really hope that, you know, uh, that everything goes wrong at church and I find myself running around trying to fix things, you know. No, no, I don't say that. And that's not persecution. Those are just trials. But I don't get up in the morning and say, I really hope I'm persecuted for my faith. And yet, it is so important that we understand that is part of God's perfecting work. He's made it abundantly clear there is a purpose in suffering. Oh, I don't like that message. I'm not even going to preach that message today. But the message is clear in the Bible. Those that suffer are blessed. They develop perseverance, character, and hope, and all of the many character attributes that God wants to instill in our hearts. And the only way that happens if, is if you're tested. You know, one of the things, and Pastor Russ and his wife Lisa will attest to this every couple of months in the dojo, we get tested. And it's not easy. It's like months and months of training are now on the line, and you have to sort of prove that you remember everything you were taught for weeks. It's nerve wracking. It's a little tense, it's exhausting, but I'll tell you what, when you get that belt, it feels pretty good. Because all that does is validate the fact that you pass the test. Listen, we talk about crowns in the Bible. The crown of life to those that suffer. The crown of glory, all of these different crowns, they're just an acknowledgement that you pass the test. Now, of course, we give all the glory to God. Amen? We cast our crowns at his feet. I believe we sang that this morning. So, I'm not taking any credit here. I'm not saying that, oh, we're so good, look what we did. But unless you're tested, you're never ever going to prove that you passed the test. So, yes, we're being tested, and and I think most of us today, we live in a culture where we, we don't want anyone to fail, God forbid a kid not get a trophy or a medal. Oh, he, he feels left out. He feels without value because we didn't put him on the podium next to the winner. But brothers and sisters, please understand there is value in suffering. It is not enjoyable. I could go on and on from Paul's writings. It, it, it you know, certainly doesn't seem like a pleasant experience at the time. But these things are working into your life, the very character attributes of Christ. So as the church is persecuted in the world and things begin to increase in this nation, I want you to remember that analogy. I want you to remember you're being tested and it's okay. Because with Christ, you'll pass the test. Amen? And then you'll know that you passed the test. So this church was being tested. They were enduring persecution and faithful to work and faithful to preach the gospel. We learned that in verses 2 through 3. But then we get to verses 4 through 5, and I have to say one of the least enjoyable aspects of training is having your coach, your mentor, your sensei point out all of the things you did wrong. Does anybody enjoy that? I don't. We joke around, we say, I I performed my kata and sensei shredded me like cheese. Because you just know that when you do something less than perfect, you could be 10 times better than the last time you did it, but wait a minute, there's still room for improvement. Amen? I mean, you think, oh, I'm so patient. I'm not like I was 20 years ago. I used to clock people when I got angry. I used to jump out of the car and scream. Now you just scream in the car. You don't bother jumping out of the car, which is growth. And I I applaud that. I was ready to jump out of my car on Route 3. But, you know, you only see growth over time. But I promise you, there's almost always going to be areas that need to be looked at in your life. There are going to be times, even for this desirable church, where you have to look and say, you know, I this is an area I need to address in my life. Oh, I look at our church as the pastor of this church, and I say, you know, we need to address this area. Sometimes it'll be us sitting together, a couple of the pastors, and saying, like a couple of years ago, we really need to have something post-COVID now, especially for our young people. And by young people, we mean like five to ten people, or five to... Ages 5 to 10, or ages 5 to 12. And we sit down at a diner and we talk about it and we address it. We said we could do a better job. And so out of that, the Lord inspires some of our leaders to start Calvary Kids, which Sal mentioned is starting up on the 21st of this month. Again, we took off for the summer. Or we look at the events like a kid's swim party, or we look at, you know, something else like a Pinewood Derby, which, by the way, you know, that's coming up in October. And we don't just put these things on the calendar because we think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have things to do? No, it's because we've sat down and we've, we've prayed and we've said, what can we do better? What needs to be addressed? What areas of ministry could improve? We don't sit back and say, yeah, we're doing a good job. Nobody's complaining. And nobody was. And now we look to our older youth as we look at the teenagers. And, you know, the amazing thing about a youth ministry is if you have a great children's ministry, in five years you've got a big youth ministry. And so we are already addressing those needs before they arrive. We're already talking about it. Pastor Raj and I were talking yesterday about some of the things we're looking forward to doing in the fall in the way of Bible studies for our teenagers, for our youth. Now, that doesn't happen... Because we pat ourselves on the back and say, aren't we great? It happens because we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our church and point out the things that need to change. So here's what happens. Jesus says in verses 4 through 5, and we've read it already, yet I hold this against you. Now right away you get your feathers ruffled, right? Oh, come on. That's usually the reaction. Oh, come on. But you have to receive constructive criticism to improve. Can I hear an amen? Amen. I'm going to say it again. You need to be able to receive constructive criticism to improve. Amen? Amen? Okay, so here we go. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, that is change, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, the lampstand represents the church. It's pretty harsh, isn't it? He's basically saying your church won't be there unless you address this fundamental issue within the church. Now remember, writing to an actual church in the first century, also indicative of a time in church history, also indicative of churches that exist today and individual hearts before God. But this is an important message Because, brothers and sisters, you can do everything else right, but if you don't have a heart for God, you get it all wrong. Your church will fail. You can do lots of things right, but this is so primary that if you fail in this one area, you're wasting your time as a ministry. It's true. And it's so easy to fall into this way of thinking. You see, they had forsaken the person of Jesus, their first love the person not the work of the ministry not the gospel they did all of that probably a good sized church might have even been what we call today a mega church they might have had multiple locations but at the end of the day they had forgotten about Jesus and let me give you a little insight onto some of the ways this we we see this happen even today first of all it's all about the people it's all about the outreach Even the worship, it kind of becomes about entertainment. It's not about Jesus anymore. The songs have to be focused on him and what he's done for us. They can preach the powerful message of what God has done, or they can open up our hearts to God, how great thou art. But the worship needs to be sincere. And the hearts of God's people, when they open up God's word, isn't, oh, I can't really, I just can't wait until Pastor Tim tells us when the rapture is going to take place. Really? Because the last time I checked, the blessed hope of his appearing, that is our hope in Christ. It's when Christ returns. It's all about Jesus. Remember, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you lose that heart desire for Jesus, and instead gain knowledge and look for understanding of the Scriptures apart from a relationship with God, you need to change. You've lost your first love. You've lost it. So as I look at this, I realize Paul had spoken so well of this church just a few years earlier when he wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus. But they had now placed their service to Jesus over their relationship with him. And when I say I believe this is the easiest sin to fall into, it is certainly true. So many people do so many things for so many and neglect Jesus. They needed to restore their relationship with him immediately. Now, again, I've shared with you already that can speak of a church today. It could speak to us individually, but it spoke to the first century church of Ephesus. And I'm going to give you these three little mnemonics, okay? There's a mnemonic with, with R's. What does it say? First, it says, remember the height from which you have fallen. So the first thing to do, if this describes you today or any church, is remember. How did we start? Remember the height. What was the height? The height of love for Jesus. That's why you got into this thing. You you, you didn't give your heart to Jesus so you could get here at 8 o'clock in the morning to turn on lights and set up the sound system or put chairs out or make coffee. The height was that you were in love with Jesus. Remember that. Don't worry about the work. If you've gotten caught up in the work, then you need to stop the work and get back to the primary work, which is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So remember, you'll never get there unless you stop and remember. Say it with me. Remember. One more time. Remember. Do you remember? Remember. The second is pretty easy. It's repent. I say it's easy because it actually is easy once you remember to repent. But you have to remember first. It says repent. Repent. What does that mean? It means to change your mind. So you remember and you say, oh my goodness, pastor, you're right. I used to love Jesus so much. I used to just worship Jesus. And now I'm so busy doing things for Jesus. I need to remember that. Now what do I do about it? I need to stop thinking that way, being that way. I need to repent. I need to change. How do we change? You change in your mind. The word repent means a change of mind, which results in a change of direction. You don't change direction. You change your mind, and then your mind allows you to change direction. So it's actually very simple. Remember and say, oh, my goodness, you're right, Pastor. Repent. That is change. And finally, this is, the, this is really even easier, actually, once you've done the first two. Say repent with me. Remember, repent, and then this one, repeat. Repeat. Well, it's not in there in the Scripture, But it is, because look what it says. And do the things you did at first. Repeat. Remember. Repent. And repeat. You guys got to go. Give me a little bit more. Repeat. Repeat. All right. There we go. That is something that's so important to remember. Now, at a church level, it means the leaders coming together, the people coming together, and putting an emphasis on a relationship with Jesus, praise and worship of Jesus, remembering that, and then getting rid of anything, any activity in the church that doesn't promote that goal and that objective. So there's something going on. Like, let's say you have a food pantry, and food pantries are wonderful things. I imagine this church had one. And, and every week you hand out food, and thousands of people are coming and getting fed. But you know, people are just running around with boxes and filling boxes and helping people, and then they go home and they say, oh, my goodness, I'm so tired. You know, I'm not even going to go to church tomorrow. I'm just so tired. Yeah, I went to church. I spent the day at church. That sounds kind of interesting, but when you think it through, what are you saying? You're saying what was true of Ephesus about yourself. You need to remember, repent, and repeat. So, you know, a food pantry is a good thing, but if it becomes a work of the flesh— I like to call them activity traps because you get involved in an activity and then before you know it, it was like, well, we got to go to the food pantry. We got to feed people. We got to help people. Just got to get this done. Obviously, you've lost it. You've lost your first love. You're not doing it for the right reason anymore. We have a policy here when it comes to service, Sunday school, operations, overhead slides, whatever it is you're doing, teaching a Bible study, teaching the children, whatever it is, If it's not a joy, please quit. We don't want anyone doing the work without having done the first work. That is to give their hearts to God and love God through their work. That's a very important thing. We we keep tabs on that around here. We really do. They were warned in the latter part of verse 5. They were warned that their church would cease to exist if they did not repent. Now, when you look at that warning, it sounds like, he kind of says, I I will come to you and remove your lampstand. It's like Jesus is almost wagging his finger and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the church out of here if you don't act up. Stop acting up. That's not it at all. This is simply the consequence of what happens when you're no longer in love with Jesus. Uh, The church will fail. It may be a social club, it may be an entertainment center, it may be a theater, but it won't be a church. It won't be a place where Jesus is worshipped. So this is a warning. It might even continue to exist, God forbid. It may even get bigger, but at the end of the day, it's no longer a church because Jesus is not at the center of what's happening there. Now the church without Jesus is not a church. And as we like to say, Christ is the head. The church is the body, and we all know this, despite what you might have seen in sci-fi and fantasy movies, a body cannot live without its head. A body cannot live without its head. And Jesus is the head of the church. So what does Jesus say to this church in verse 6? But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, it's interesting. Hate? Oh, pastor, Jesus hates you. Jesus hates sin because it hurts you. Jesus hates sin because it hurts you. People say, oh, you don't want to hate? No, I hate sin. It destroys lives. I hate a lot of evil things in this world. We don't hate people. We love people. But because we love people, we hate sin. He hates this doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And unless you do a little study, you won't know what he's even talking about. But they knew certainly what he was talking about. This is another commendation. So after having given them a commendation and then a correction, then he also comes along and commends them for something else. Now the Nicolaitans, check this out, the Nicolaitans, check this out, they believe that the clergy should be elevated above the laity. That is, they believe that pastors and priests were better than everybody else. And we all know that isn't true. But for many years, centuries, in fact, in the church, in the world, and even in some churches today, the clergy is held as being much higher than the common person that attends. Jesus said, and I quote, I hate that. That is strong. I hate it. Now, nah, you know, I'm not really. No, I hate it. You hate it, and I hate it too. See, Jesus despises leaders that serve themselves and not others. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. So when you see a leader with the ring, kiss the ring, bow down to me, dress me in fancy robes, or whatever, put me in a situation where, you know, I sign autographs, Celebrity pastors, popes, priests, whatever you want to call them, Jesus hates that. I don't think I need to say anything more. And what will Jesus do? He will reward this church, should they overcome. And what does it mean to overcome? Well, the first thing you have to recognize when you overcome, you're overcoming an obstacle. There's something in your life that needs to be dealt with, right? You don't overcome something unless there's something that needs to be overcome. So what was it? What we know, they were doing a lot of things right. But this issue of their relationship with Jesus, they needed to overcome that that problem. That was a legitimate criticism, a significant criticism against this church, even though they did so many other things well. But Jesus says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear. First of all, let's do an ear check. Testing one, two... Testing one, two. Do a Carol Burnett for me. Testing one, two. You got an ear? All right. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, these are symbols. Don't get too excited. We're not really talking literally, although there is a tree of life that was in the paradise of God that shows up in the paradise of eternity. It's not about the tree. It's about the symbol and what it means. Essentially, one thing you need to know about the tree of life, and I'm sure you know this if you've read Genesis 3, that access to the tree of life has been denied because of sin. See, sin keeps you from life because the wages of sin is death. So, we need to overcome death. Sin brings death we need to overcome sin and death and how do we do this you know the answer in sunday school is almost always the same it's either god or jesus in this case it's both kids even know that you ask them a question they're not really listening god no jesus they know the answer is jesus they got that much And this is the tree of life. It's a symbol of Jesus. You see, every one of the seven churches is told to overcome, and Jesus gives them a reward, and the reward is Him. If you're looking for a reward, separate and apart from Jesus, there is no reward or award or anything apart from Jesus. That's why if you're not in love with Jesus, you're going to be very upset when you get to heaven. Because it's all about Jesus. We worship. We'll see that when we get to chapters 4 and 5. We worship Jesus in heaven. You better be practicing now. Or you're going to get up there, we're going to have to have you in remediation. You're going to have to take the class on a cloud somewhere that says, all right, listen, here's how we worship. How great thou art. You know, don't wait. You need to be in love with Jesus today. Amen? Amen. Through Jesus Christ, this is the gospel, we can receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And that's what the tree of life represents. Forgiveness. And eternal life. It's a symbol of forgiveness and eternal life. Remember when they sinned, God barred them from the tree of life. Because the wages of sin is death, they would die. We don't know what would have happened had they actually ate from the tree of life after they ate from the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, but they never got a chance. God made sure of it. But because of Jesus Christ, we're given access to the tree of life, which is a symbol of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we're given Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Say amen. Amen. Jesus is the tree of life. And he died on a tree. He died on the cross for your sins. Rose again on the third day. Sended into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession on your behalf. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And that's the gospel message, as simple as I can make it. If you give your heart to Jesus and you recognize that He died on that cross, on that tree for you, and He rose again to give you eternal life, and He's coming again to judge the living and the dead, and you're judged righteous in Christ because you have access to the tree of life. If you know that, if you know that gospel message, and you've given your life to Jesus Christ, then you're saved. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. That's the gospel. Now, as I've said already, and briefly, this not only speaks to a first century church, it speaks to a time in church history. For example, the apostolic church, of which, as Ephesus was one of the churches, all seven were a part of the apostolic age. But it's important to recognize, in the first century, Jesus was the authority in the church. It was true in Ephesus. It was true in the first century. He was allowed to have significant control in the church. Imagine we have to allow Jesus to have control, but he was allowed to have significant control in the church. His word was seldom doubted. He was more of a reality to the first century church because he had been alive and walking on the earth during that century. And of course. He died and rose again and ascended into heaven. So he was very much a reality to them, and they acted and behaved in a way that you would if you knew someone was real, a real person. This was an era when the church worked faithfully, clearly. We're all here, the recipients of their legacy. They worked faithfully, preaching the gospel and ministering to lots of people. Yet they slowly drifted away from the person of Jesus. They became so busy working for him, that they neglected him for whom they worked. Busy. Busy under Satan's yoke. It's an acronym. Busy. Don't get so busy. Slow things down. This church era, the apostolic age, the church era, ultimately came to an end, and you know, it came to an end through persecution. Yes. You see, persecution came into the church, and we'll talk about this next week. And lo and behold, everyone fell in love with Jesus. That's what happens when you suffer. And remember I told you there's a purpose in suffering? Listen, the goal, don't sit there thinking, Oh, I'm in love with you, Jesus. I'm in love, I don't want to suffer. I'm in love with you, Jesus. No, that, that's, the goal isn't to avoid persecution or suffering. It's to be in love with Jesus so that even if you suffer, you're close to him. But what God will do, will allow persecution in the church. And what inevitably happens is, when you're suffering, and don't even try to tell me it's not true, you're going through a hard time, you're in love with Jesus. You're praying, you're reading, you're worshiping, you're crying during the worship service. The week before you lost your job, you weren't even thinking about Jesus. Now you're all over Jesus. That's what it takes sometimes. But God is so good, amen? One of the other things that's important to remember During this apostolic age, the elevation of the clergy was forcefully resisted. Clergy was not given the place of being served. They were expected to serve. They were looked at as ministers. The word means slave. It wasn't until after this church age that ministers started to be like little kings. But that didn't happen in the first century. Actually, to stand up and say, oh, I'll be the pastor of the church is like you're going to take fire. You're going to be persecuted. You might be killed. You might be thrown in jail. You're certainly going to work hard. And see what happens when all of a sudden there's a really nice salary package and you get all kinds of perks and everybody says, oh, pastor, pastor, oh, pastor, pastor. All of a sudden it attracts a certain type of person. Not the right kind of person, mind you. Read the Bible. You'll see what kind of person a pastor should be. Well, this also speaks of any church at any time. I like to call this type of church the program church. They got lots of programs. You go on their website, you get dizzy scrolling down. There's so much going on. You're like, oh my goodness, what is this, Facebook? You don't, you don't even know, what time is this? Do I have services? All I see is graphics. There's so much going on. There's a fellowship for women, young women, old women. I was going to say something that I'm not going to say. I'll leave it there. This fellowship for little kids, big kids. Adults that act like kids. You got everything. But where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? You know, many of these program churches, they respect the authority of the Word of God. They don't deny Scripture. They're willing to faithfully work. Oh, yeah, lots of work god 's purposes we got the food pantry we got the missions outreach we got the, the recreation league for the kids we got everything they neglect the practice of god 's presence and forsake relationship for religion that 's the program church. One good thing I can say a lot of, about a lot of these program churches is they don 't elevate the clergy above the laity many times. Uh, The pastors are regular people, and that's a good thing, because they are actually regular people. In fact, many times it's the laity that is the common person in the church that directs the clergy. So there are good things about the program church, but the bad thing is that they're so busy in their programs, they forget about the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to close by reading the personal application, because I told you we're going to look at it four ways. We've looked at it three of the four. Let's end by looking at the final application of this letter. And I'm gonna read it for you. We're looking at the personal message. Forget about the first century church. Forget about the apostolic age. Forget about the church called Desirable or Ephesus. Forget about that big church down the corner that has lots of programs. Let's talk about you as we close. What about you? What does this mean to you? What's your what's your take home? I like to go to a restaurant that give you a little bit too much food and then you get that little container. La comida sobra, you know? Leftovers. I'm going to send you home with a little leftover here. Ready? A little abundance of the word today. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 10, in verse 38, we read about a woman, and I call the person who lives like the people in the church of Ephesus, I call them Marthas. They have Martha syndrome. Oh, you won't find it on WebMD. But Martha's syndrome is pretty easy to diagnose. Look at this, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, in verse 38, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. I pray this morning that you choose Jesus, not a church, not a ministry, but Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you for this correction. Yeah, we got shredded, but it's a good thing. And we thank you for the constructive criticism that allows us to make correction. Help us, Lord, to remember. Help us, Lord, to repent. And help us to repeat, to do again those things that we did when we first fell in love with you. Help us, Lord, as a church. Help us in this culture. And help us as individuals, Lord, to not be Martha's, but to be Mary's. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.